Let's open our Bibles together to Psalm 31. Psalm 31. This Psalm of David, written for our instruction, for our help, and our hope. I come to this Psalm aware that everyone in this room will have a time when crisis will come into your life. Crisis will come into your life. And so we need Psalms like Psalm 31 because we are not prepared for all the ways that life turns and twists. And by that, I mean it's not on the calendar. You didn't make uh, schedule adjustments ahead of time. You're just going about your life and then it seems uh, the bottom falls out. And what we believe about Christ is not just four days when everything is going according to our plans. Christ is not just for easy days. Christ is Lord over the valley and He's near to the brokenhearted. And He is the faithful friend that sticks closer than any companion the world can offer. For the Christian, the Lord Jesus is not our last resort. We turn to Him and we do so quickly. We turn to Him as our refuge because we know what the Word of God teaches about the Lord Jesus Christ. Our need this morning is to see how Psalm 31 stirs within us this longing and hope for God to be our refuge when life is coming undone. And this psalmist's circumstances, inwardly and outwardly, are grievous. It seems that if anything could go wrong, that's what's going wrong. And this psalmist is facing physical turmoil and travail. This psalmist is experiencing emotional challenges and spiritual longing. He is surrounded by, in addition to those things, as if that's not enough, he is surrounded by those who seek his undoing, and through their accusations and their plots, they are committed to his destruction. This is a circumstance in Psalm 31 where not just one thing seems to be unraveling, but a whole host of things all at once. It's why the psalmist sometimes talk about the trials of life like waves and torrents of destruction overwhelming them. Because it doesn't look like they're able to just sail through this with all of their swimming strength, but are indeed being pulled under and overcome in such a way that they think, I'm being brought down and death is next. This psalm is a lament. And it's a lament from someone who knows God and is pleading for God to uphold him in this difficulty. It is a plea for deliverance. It is a plea that God would show himself faithful with his steadfast love and might. And it is to the choir master, a psalm of David, the superscription says, which means the choir master in the conduction of Israel's musical life would have this psalm, as, had, as is true for the previous ones, to be used in the corporate life of Israel because when David feels like his life is falling apart and everything seems to be coming undone, there are those in the midst who would sing this and say, David, we have felt that way too. David, we know what it is like to be overcome by all sorts of griefs and sorrows, inwardly and outwardly, and say, Lord, help. And in verses 1-5, to the psalmist is going to entrust himself to God. He's going to entrust himself to God. 
This is not just the prayer of the psalmist. We're watching someone show us what to do. He is teaching us. And in verses 1 to 5, he says, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me. A strong fortress to save me. The familiar language, we've noticed language like refuge. Language like, let me never be put to shame. The psalmist doesn't want it to be in the end true that he hoped in, in God in vain. He doesn't want to be put to shame that God was the basis of his hope and the foundation of his strength and faith. He says, Lord, so I'm going to trust you. I'm going to put my whole, whole life in you as my refuge. So when that day comes and my enemies seek to rejoice over me and I stand before your bar of judgment, oh God, let that day I not be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. One of the reasons the psalmist believes he can entrust himself to the Lord is because the Lord is righteous and not one way one day and a different way another day. That the Lord is righteous and good, unwaveringly faithful, pure in his nature, and that God being the holy, holy, holy God of hosts can in his righteousness rescue the psalmist because God never acts toward his people with anything other than his righteousness. The psalmist is banking all on that. In your righteousness, Lord, I need deliverance. You're my refuge. I don't want to be put to shame. So incline your ear to me and rescue me speedily. You can feel a sense of urgency. The psalmist is looking at his circumstances and he says, Lord, it doesn't look like there's any time to lose. I need you to act, O God. I need you to rescue, O God. Rescue me speedily. And I need you to hear me. Incline your ear. That my cry would reach your ear. You be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. The language of rock and fortress are familiar to the Psalms, just like refuge in verse 1. David doesn't change his mind from psalm to psalm about who God is. What has David's experience been like in earlier psalms where he's, been, where he's on a path of difficulty and afflicted from all sides? Those psalms... David has declared in them, God is my rock. David still believes that in Psalm 31. God is the refuge for David in earlier Psalms. Well, what about this circumstance in Psalm 31? God is still his refuge. These things haven't changed. And so as circumstances ebb and flow, and as the unpredictabilities of life unfold, what stays the same? God is rock and refuge and a strong fortress for his people. So David says, Hear my cry then, because this is who I believe you to be. And I need you to be that rock of refuge for me. Be a strong fortress to save me. There's no time to lose. Then he says in verse 3, For you are my rock and my fortress. So why didn't we just look at that language in verse 2? At the end, it was, it was in the, the form of a, a call with prayer, a request. Be a rock of refuge. Now, why would David say, be this for me, O Lord? In verse 3, he explains why. For that's what you are. Now, follow the logic here. He's saying, Lord, in verse 2, be this because in verse 3, I know you are this. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. 
David here is calling for the Lord to act according to how the Lord has already been and proven himself toward the people of God. That is, Lord, the reason I'm calling for you to be my rock is because that's what I know you are. So God, reign as God over my circumstance. And you might think, well, would God do anything other than reign as God? Well, of course, David's not saying this for God to say, that's right, thank you for the reminder. Instead, the Lord is is being called here with David's dependence on God for God to faithfully do as God will do for his people. David's saying this to show that he trusts the Lord in this way for your name's sake. You lead me and guide me. Doesn't that make you think of Psalm 23? In Psalm 23, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He says, Lord, this is what you do. And just because David said it in an earlier psalm doesn't mean it's now failing to be true in a later psalm. It's still true that God acts for his own great name to lead and preserve and rescue his people. He says in verse 4, you take me out of the net they've hidden for me, for you are my refuge. The they, not a lot is given here about the they. They are clearly interested in entrapping David for his destruction. That's what you would do if you wanted to to, uh, catch someone unsuspecting. You would form a trap and you would conceal it. So that the person whose demise you wanted to ensure, when that person comes along, the trap you've hidden for them springs And then their undoing is sure because your trap is successful. He says, Lord, I know people have it out for me. They have nets hidden for me. And so what I need you to do, God, is you take me out of the net they've hidden for me for you're my refuge. So if if I'm entrusting myself to you, oh, Lord, I need your hands to pry apart and deliver me from any, any plots that they have for my undoing. And because God... Is David's rock and fortress. David knows he can trust the Lord to act for his own great name's sake to deliver his people. David says in verse 5, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. David's life is being summed up here with this language of spirit. I commit my spirit is a shorthand way of saying, Lord, I can't deliver myself. I am so overcome and so overwhelmed by the billows and sorrows of snares and my own sins and those around me that are trying to undo my life. I have to entrust all that I am to all that you are. That is not a losing proposition, friends. This is the best thing David can do every day, no matter what he faces. So he's teaching us here what to do. We should pray this. We should say to the Lord, into your hand, I commit my spirit. You say, well, isn't God sovereign over all things? This isn't to deny the sovereignty of God that would somehow click in as long as we commit ourselves. This is to say in verse 5, we are depending on trusting in and submitting to the Lord in genuine prayers like this. I commit myself to you, O God, once again. And the reason David can do this today is because who God has been for him yesterday and the day before that and the year before that and the year before that. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. What has the Lord shown himself to be in David's life? Check out this adjective, faithful God. That's how David can describe him. 
If we say true things about God, we can say this of Him as well. On that list of true things, He is a faithful God. He is never unfaithful. He is never undependable. He's not wishy-washy. Instead, in verse 5, He says, You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Into Your hand I commit my spirit. This is an entrusting of life to God. This must be driven by someone whose heart believes in the supremacy of God, in the goodness of God, in the righteousness of God, in the power of God. Why else would you pray this if you did not think God had power to rescue or He wasn't committed to what is right in the world according to His own great name and nature? David does believe these things about God. And that's why he can say into your hand, I commit my spirit In verses 6 through 8, he's going to explain his trust in God a bit more. And he's going to start by explaining his trust with the language of hate. So don't let this throw us for a moment. It seems to come out of nowhere. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. You see, it's that latter part of the verse that's the key. I trust in the Lord. And then he's going to go on in verses 7 and 8. I will rejoice in God. I'll be glad in your steadfast love. He's going to explain more of what his trust will be. He's going to trust in God. But friends, listen. David knows he has contemporaries around him. Their trust might not be in God. They might pay regard in their hearts and in their acts of worship, in their devotion to what is not God. And the other word we have for that biblically is, well, that's idolatry. The the language hate might surprise us here because other parts of the Bible teach us to pray for our persecutors, to bless those who persecute us, to love our enemies. None of those verses are contradicted by this one. Knowing that we are to think about the Word of God in all the ways it is connected, we wonder, how do I hold this verse together in light of also what I know of being compassionate and bearing the fruit of the Spirit and being willing to return good Uh, from uh, from, uh, receiving evil rather than returning revilement for revilement. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. I trust in the Lord. These are the extremes. The extremes on the spectrum are hate and love. The word love doesn't appear here. The word trust does. But love is is denoted by this trust. He hates those who pay regard to worthless idols. I trust in the Lord. And it's a way of recognizing the danger of idol worship in the hearts of people. David recognizes they are not my people. They pay regard to worthless idols. Their heart therefore imitates that. Their lives are lived in light of worthless worship. And David says, I hate that. I despise that. David doesn't love sin. David's heart is oriented toward what is good and wise and true. So he doesn't feel neutral about idolatry. It provokes him. And I would, indic- I would suggest here that this is a righteous indignation that David feels toward idol worship. He says, my trust is not like theirs. They look to vain idols. Idols that can't hear Idols that can't save. Idols that can't see. And David says, incline your ear to me and save because, Lord, you're not an idol. I trust in the Lord. David is repulsed by wickedness, and that's because his heart is influenced by the Word of God. He knows what his heart should do in response to wickedness. And that is to not desire it, 
to not facilitate it, to not pursue it. It's not neutral in David's mind. He feels loathing for this unrighteousness. In verse 7, he rejoices and will be glad in your steadfast love, he says to the Lord. Because you've seen my affliction, you've known the distress of my soul, and you've not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You've set my feet in a broad place. David is convinced here what the future is for him. Future joy in God. And friend, listen to me carefully this morning. This is our future and you can be confident in it. You can be confident that in knowing Christ, our future is joy in Christ. David believes it. He trusts this by faith, even in the midst of his great suffering. But he knows, I shall rejoice in the Lord. I shall be glad in your steadfast love. See, he's a faithful God. What's one of the things about this faithful God that is sure and dependable toward his people? His love. His steadfast covenant faithfulness. And David says, because you have seen my affliction, you have known the distress of my soul. And this is, this is not only that David pays attention to David's present, that God pays attention to David's present, but that God knows David's past afflictions and has known them and has seen them and has acted. You have not delivered me into the hand of my enemy. Hand language seems to be important in Psalm 31. Into your hand I commit my spirit And you have not delivered me into the hand of my enemies. My life's not in their hands. My life is in your hands, Lord. That's what my prayer is. And you've set my feet in a wide place, a broad place. Why would we want our feet in a broad place? It's a geographical picture of being delivered and not hemmed in and bound up with the constraints of trial. Sometimes in the Psalms, David and the other lamenting psalmists, they will speak about trials closing in on them from every side, like they're about to suffocate from the sheer toil and overwhelming nature of it all. And he's saying, you have delivered me from that. And I'm not being constricted by the trials that have wrapped themselves around me like some wily serpent and trying to squeeze the life from me. But instead, Lord, you brought my feet into a broad place. It's it's an image of deliverance, of liberation. So he's spoken about his trust in the Lord in verses 1 to 5. And he's explained a bit more like that. He said, "I'm I'm not like idol worshipers. My trust is in you. I loathe idolatry. Lord, I'm trusting in you. My joy in you is my future. And you have already attended to my affliction in the past. I can trust you with the present. In verses 9 through 13... David is going to describe a bit more how dark things are. Remember earlier at the beginning of the message, I said to you that sometimes it feels like everything is going wrong all at once that could go wrong. And David is going to describe in verses 9 through 13 his present distress. And he's giving us some insight into how overwhelming all of this feels. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. That's his present So in the midst of his circumstances, what is David doing? David knows Christ is not my last resort. I turn quickly to the Lord. He is my refuge and help in the day of trouble. So David prays, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief. 
I take that to mean David's grief has been so consuming and it has resulted in so many tears that he feels like his eyes are no longer any good because of how he's been spending them. His eyes seem wasted from with all the sorrow. My soul and my body also. We're getting indications in verse 9 that inwardly and outwardly David is unwell. That he's overcome inwardly and outwardly with various constraints and he prays to the Lord to be gracious. What it would look like for God to be gracious is for God's help and strength to intervene in the direction David's life is going. And David says, be gracious. And by that, I mean, rescue me, O God. Show me mercy, O God. Uphold me, O God. People around me are trying to take my life. He says in verse 10, for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. And the first line of verse 10 suggests to us the extremity of his desperation. His life has been so overcome by sorrow, David doesn't say, Lord, I'm coming to you and I'm speaking this way because I've really had a pretty rough afternoon. David's saying, there has been seasons of my life where I am facing this. And my eyes, my soul, my body, not just briefly, but even years The sighing, the sorrow, oh Lord, it is too much. And my strength fails. This is the case with suffering in life. There are are billows of suffering. There are waves of affliction that seem to so drain us that you think, I don't think I can get my two feet out of this bed. I am so overwhelmed with sorrow and grief. David says, I don't have any strength. It has failed me. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Added to all of the difficulty David has faced physically are his spiritual struggles with sin. When he says my strength fails because of my iniquity, part of the challenge of David's grief includes his own transgression. Because if if life wasn't difficult enough... That we're facing the challenges of a fallen world and the trials of this age and the bodily ailings that take place. We have our own besetting and dwelling sin. And David says, okay, my strength has failed. Body and soul are in distress. My eyes, the sighing, the sorrow that have come from them. Add to that my own iniquity. Sin weakens us. One of the temptations that people will face in times of affliction, is to turn from the Lord in rebellion. That they would no longer look to the Lord as their refuge, but they will say, Lord, if I'm following you and this is what happens in my life, then I'm clocking out of this. I'm trusting something else. Apparently, you're nothing faithful like they've said and sung for those years. David here is recognizing in this prayer, I'm turning to the Lord And that even though I have ongoing struggles physically, emotionally, spiritually, and even enemies around me seeking to ensnare my life, I'm not going to turn from you. How is a strategy of sin going to improve my life? How is turning from the Lord going to bring relief to the sinner? Sin is never the answer to a life in affliction. Rebellion and turning from the Lord is never the thing, though it might, by the enemy's lies, seek to allure us in that direction, never the thing that will empower, strengthen, and sustain. 
As one commentator says, sin weakens us all. Sin produces death. And on the way to the dust, it robs us of physical strength and emotional stability and spiritual power and logical clarity. Sin destroys us. This writer continues, sin promises to build us up, to free us and to give us power only to tear us down and enslave us. Sin never delivers on its promises. And David recognizes, if I'm dealing with my own sin and trials external for me as well, the answer is never to turn from the Lord. What is Psalm 31 teaching us? Psalm 31 exists because David is turning to the Lord. That's what the psalm is. It's the overflow of prayer and and lament in David's heart to the Lord. In verse 11, because of all my adversaries, I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who's dead. I've become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. You can imagine being in a situation of such physical and emotional turmoil and wishing there were those around you that you could turn to. David speaks as if he is totally alone. He says in verse 11, okay, I've got adversaries around me and because of them, I've become an object of scorn. They look at me as if I'm this thing of reproach, something that they are repulsed by, especially to my neighbors. In verse 11, his neighbors don't become the means of God's grace and support in David's life. Rather, they join the posture of the adversaries and view David as as a reproach. An object of dread to my acquaintances. So the people David knows, this is not a circumstance where they prove to be counted on. God is a faithful God, but it seems that here these acquaintances view David as an object of dread. And maybe that's because they're convinced that if David's going through what he's going through, he must be under the judgment of God. You see, Job's friends thought that way. Job's friends thought that because Job dealt with what he was going through physically and spiritually, that the reason Job is in that affliction is because Job did something to bring that about. But life is never so simple as that. Job's friends were wrong trying to reduce the afflictions of life to something that you're just causing directly. And these neighbors and these acquaintances, they view David as an object of reproach and dread, perhaps under the very condemnation of God. And they want nothing to do with David. So when they see him on the street, you know what they do? They stop and they turn around and they go back up the other other way. Or they cross that street and they go on the other side. They want nothing to do with David. If David is that wounded figure in the Gospel of Luke, the Levite passes him by and the priest passes him by and the only hope is that that wounded and neglected man would have that good Samaritan come along because everyone else seems to be going on the other side of the road. They want nothing to do with the hurting David. He says, I've been forgotten like one dead. I don't think he's talking about I've been forgotten by the Lord. I think he's talking about the acquaintances and the neighbors and those around him. They treat him, David, like they would an ancestor from four generations ago. Those people don't even cross the mind of those in the present. 
I mean, how often do you go about your day making decisions and having conversations with your mind conscious of people who have died in your uh, ancestry generations back? That probably doesn't shape and and, uh, dominate the goings-on of your day. You really go day-to-day not thinking about them. Now, you can consciously call those to mind, and you can uh, open up Ancestry.com, and you can go through a lot of uh, intentional pursuits of those who have been long dead. But David says, here's what I mean. You're treating me as if I don't even exist. You're treating me as if I'm a distant memory from someone that doesn't even affect your day-to-day. What does my suffering mean to you? My suffering seems to mean nothing. I'm just like a broken vessel. In verse 12, the image of a broken vessel. Well, what good is using pottery if it's broken when you need to plant something in it? In other words, if you needed pottery that was intact and all of a sudden it breaks, it's like, well, that was the usefulness. Uh, I'm going to have to figure out something else or just throw this aside. It was common for archaeologists over the last 200 years to find all kinds of broken pottery in the ancient world. Pieces of pottery that were cast aside in streets, left outside of homes. Because broken pottery didn't suggest the use inside of the home that an intact pottery piece would. David says, I'm like that which is cast into the street, ignored, passed by, and covered over. And then I hear the whispering of many in verse 13, terror on every side as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. David is under threat. He knows the whisperings of those around him. And as a king over Israel, the stakes are quite high. Because to oppose the king and to seek the king's undoing would have major ramifications for the people in the land, right? They are scheming together against God's anointed one. Does it remind you of Psalm chapter 2? In Psalm chapter 2, the, old, the future Messiah from Psalm 2, who would reign over the nations would be the anointed one against whom kings of the earth would set themselves against and rulers take counsel together saying, let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. Here are people conspiring together against God's anointed one in Psalm 31, plotting to take his life. It is a dark description, I know, in verses 9 through 13. But I want you to hear the light that explodes in verses 14 through 18 in light of that background. Because diamonds sparkle against a dark background. And in light of what David is facing spiritually, emotionally, physically, and politically, David says, But I trust in You, O Lord. I say, You are my God. My goodness, what a claim. This is the resolution for the sufferer seeking refuge in God. Here it is. We we recognize God sees my affliction. And we can describe it in language that might even resonate much with verses 9 through 13 in some seasons of life. But it's the next step. What shall we do in light of what we're facing? What shall we do in light of all that has seemed to go wrong? What shall we do? David says, here's what I do. I say, you are my God. I will not turn from you. This is Job's resolution in the book of Job. Though he slay me, yet I will fear the Lord. 
Job's friends were wrong. Job was a righteous sufferer. And Job was right for his heart to be oriented toward the Lord and to trust Him and to commit his spirit to God. The book of Job exists because Job believed what David believed. Into your hand I commit my spirit. Though everyone around me may oppose and accuse. So in verse 14, I trust in you. This is the reaffirmation of this trust. One writer summed it up this way. Contrary to what one might expect under such circumstances, I will not despair. But I surrender once more to your hand, O God. It's a resolution of hope. I don't know what you're facing this morning coming in this room that might have various degrees of affliction inwardly and outwardly. That you might have come from past affliction that you seem like you're getting on the other side of. And of course, as we thought about at the beginning of the sermon, our lives always have some sort of crisis before us in our future. So we find ourselves in the daily need to be those who say, into your hand I commit my spirit. I say to you, O Lord, you are my God. I will turn to you and not from you. And in verse 15, look at his conviction in light of this truth. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Once again, a play on the word of hand, right? The hand of my enemies, I want rescue from those persecutors and those enemies who are coming. My times are what you hold, O God. Here's here's David's comfort. It's the biblical doctrine of God's sovereignty over David's life. Here's what David knows. Thank God my persecutors are not sovereign. Praise God that those who seek to accuse and undo me do not reign over heaven and earth. But you, God, in your righteousness and in your steadfast love, you reign over me. My times are in your hand. And that is a place of assurance for the people of God. Amen. This is not just the number of our days, but the content of our days. That our times, our goings on, the days of our lives are in the hand of God. And there is no more trustworthy place for all of our breaths and all of our moments of our days to be than in the hand of God. For He loves His people. And even though death shall come for us, He will raise us to glory. He shall fulfill all of His promises on our behalf because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will dwell in everlasting life with Him. So David says in verse 16, make your face shine on your servant. It's language that reminds us of Numbers chapter 6. That the face of God and His countenance would be lifted up over us. And His face shine upon us and give us peace. David's praying that from Numbers 6. Oh Lord, would you do that in my life? Would you make your face to shine on your servant? We should pray this in affliction. We should commit ourselves to the Lord and we should pray for the countenance of the face of God to shine upon us. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Here Sheol is depicting their judgment that is to come. So he says, Lord, let me not be shown that I hoped in you in vain. Instead, let the wicked's hope be shown to be in vain. Why? Their trust was different, right? David says, I trust in you, but the wicked trust in vain idols, worthless things, gods that are no gods at all. David says, on that day in the future, it will be shown that their hope was in vain. 
That those were gods that were no gods and idols that could not save. So Lord, I call upon you. Let me not be put to shame. Let the lying lips, in verse 18, be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. What's the posture of the wicked toward the people of God? David is describing those who are hostile toward the people of God. Their words and their plans seek the destruction of those that follow God and fear the Lord. David says, Lord, would you in your justice address it? Would you in your righteous judgment deliver your people and judge the wicked? Let the lying lips be muted. Now those lips would not be muted voluntarily in verse 18. This is a prayer that God would intervene and stop the strategies of the ungodly. Lord, let their plans which they speak about and their conspiracies which their words are forming, Lord, bring an end to it. Because they speak insolently or disrespectfully against the righteous in pride and contempt. The wicked are not known with their humble posture toward God, but rather high-handed rebellion. Not for their delight in God's word, but for their trust in idols and for the rejection of truth and wisdom. And God says, Lord, our hope is that you will deliver your people and that you will judge the wicked. And because you're righteous, we know we can trust you. In verses 19 through 22, he celebrates the goodness of the Lord. Oh, how abundant is your goodness. God's goodness is not meager. It is uncountable. His goodness, if we were to compare it to a kind of thing that could be counted, is so superabundant in degree and quality and quantity that it would overwhelm us and humble us should we see it. How abundant is your goodness, which you've stored up for those who fear you. I want you to know this morning what God has stored up for the people of God. It is not his wrath. It is his goodness. And we can go to rest in bed and wake up every morning under the banner of that glorious truth. God does not store up His wrath for us. We are His people. We have trusted in Christ. He is our Redeemer. And what has He stored up for us? Everlasting goodness. How abundant it is stored up for those who fear the Lord and working for those who take refuge in you. So what is it that we must do then? We must turn to Christ that our refuge would be our Redeemer. The one who has not only made all heaven and earth for Christ, but has sent his beloved son to die on the cross and rise from the dead. This abundant goodness of God is stored up for the people of God. Think of Paul's statement in Romans 8. One of the most famous promises in the whole book of Romans, even the whole Bible. That God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. How is it that God can work all things for the good? Because God works for His people according to His own abundant goodness, which has been stored up eternally for us, and we will be recipients everlastingly of our benevolent Redeemer. What news is this? In verse 19, it will be done in the sight of the children of mankind. I think this matters at the end of verse 19 because they would love for public humiliation of David to take place. They're plotting against him. They're seeking to undermine him. He says, well, here's what, Lord, I believe we're going to have publicly displayed in the future. Your abundant goodness and mercy upon your people and the destruction of the wicked's strategies. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. He's talking here about the people of God in his presence. Hidden from the plots of men. 
They try to hide snares. Well, good luck. The people of God are hidden by God. You store abundant goodness, but also you store your people. It's as if we are hidden in God Himself as our refuge. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Those tongues, like in verse 18, that are lying, conniving, conspiring lips. He's come to deliver His people. So He says in verses 21 and 22, Blessed be the Lord. For He has wondrously shown His steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. David is praising God. That's what blessed be the Lord means in verse 21. It means to praise the Lord because of his wondrous steadfast love. David was a king in a city. And it's a city that was in turmoil. A city that was surrounded, besieged. And David said, it looks by all accounts that I'm cut off. But what can be the evaluation from an earthly perspective does not tell the full story. In any particular affliction and trial of life, God is doing a million things we do not know about. David says in his alarm and in his panic, which would be understandable, by the way, I seem to be cut off from your sight. But he says, but that's not what ended up happening. I I wasn't actually cut off. I wasn't forsaken. You heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Lord, you are faithful and you're steadfast in your love. And so in moments of great suffering and affliction, we can have those panicky thoughts that might come through our mind. I'm not sure God loves me. I'm not sure he's showing faithfulness to me. I must have done something to bring this about. I'm not sure there's any way through this. And we can have those alarming thoughts that come through. But friend, look at David's example here and learn from him. He is showing that those alarming thoughts and words that can come in our mind and out our mouth don't tell the whole story. David's giving us the larger context here of where God's faithfulness and His mercy would have characterized David's life. And that is why David writes this psalm. Because he knows the mercy of God, not His wrath. Because God has stored up goodness for David, not condemnation. The reason we know we should learn from this is not just implied from previous verses. Verses 23 through 24 end our psalm this morning, and it's a command to everybody who reads the psalm. So here's David's way of pressing on the application of the psalm, even though we've made various points along the way so far. If we were to say, David, what's the takeaway from the diary entry of Psalm 31 that you're giving to us? You've told us about this great sorrow and these abounding griefs, but also God's abundant goodness. What should we do with what we know happened to you, David? David says, I'm so glad you asked. It's right at the end of my psalm. Verses 23 and 24, Love the Lord, all you His saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. This is the psalmist calling everyone to love God and to wait on God as David seeks to do. Is David doing that perfectly in David's life? Well, no. David's longing is to walk in a manner that is wise before God on this path of fearing the Lord, despite what he can't control, despite his besetting sins. He knows what he needs and what we need is love for God. Love the Lord, all you his saints. That that means he's not just addressing some of us, is he? But all, all you his saints, devote yourself to the Lord. Live for the Lord. 
love him. The Lord preserves the faithful. There's a promise. We cast ourselves upon the Lord and he is our refuge and he sustains and preserves. But what about those who do not humbly come to the Lord as their refuge? They reject God. They want nothing to do with his word. They want to go their own way. They want to go their own path. Well, in their pride, God will repay them as well. But he will repay them according to their high-handed rebellion. And that, my friend, looks like judgment. So I think what David is putting before you is similar to the Moses words of Deuteronomy, where he says, I said before you this day, life and death, choose life. I said before you, love the Lord or be destroyed in your pride. Love the Lord. Love the Lord, all you his saints. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Now, if David says earlier, I, my strength fails me, then where is this strength going to come from that we are called to respond with? Friend, when we come to the Lord and we call upon him as our refuge, we will find that in our lives it is his mighty hand that upholds us with a strength not our own. When David says, be strong, let your heart take courage, that's another way of saying, cast yourself upon the Lord, find your refuge in the Lord and trust him. So that the effect, the the good consequence upon our lives, the positive one of strength and courage in the heart would be the result. All you who wait for the Lord. That's one way to describe the people of God. We're those who live with a posture of hope. We don't grieve like the world does. We don't believe this is a closed universe and we're just random chemical reactions progressing over millions of years. We believe we were made in the image of God. And that though we had all like sheep gone astray, he has sent his son to us. And that Christ has died for our iniquity. And he has risen from the dead on the third day. We believe this. And Jesus on the cross quotes from this psalm. Did you catch the similarity in Psalm 31 verse 5 with the words of Jesus as he dies? In Psalm 31 verse 5, David wrote, Into your hand I commit my spirit. So David writes this from his affliction. And we have a hope in the risen Lord Jesus who on the cross dies as the true and greater David. Not because of his own sins, but because our sins were counted to him. And in his remaining words on the cross, he says to the Father, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. Why does Jesus say that? The Son of God prays that because He is the greater Son of David whose life embodies even more truly the situation of Psalm 31. People plotting against Him with their lying lips. People conspiring and seeking to undo and to overthrow. Oh, if there was ever a righteous sufferer who walked the earth, it was the Lord Jesus. Listen to His word from the cross. As His body is ailing, And as his breath is fading, and in his final words, he says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. One writer says, that's not Jesus giving up, that's Jesus offering up. And I think that distinction matters. This is not despair, it is a statement prayed in hope. Because we know who God is. He is the faithful God. The redeeming God. The God who will keep all of his promises. The God who will raise the dead. The God who will vindicate his people. The God who will judge the wicked. We can say with all confidence into your hands. Commit my spirit. Just as the Lord Jesus did. Let's pray.